Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 7th. I'm Dogna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial is written by Roger L. Wilson from Mobile, and Roger writes, Our government tells us the unemployment rate is at, at decades low. If this is so, why are there so many help-wanted signs in front of so many businesses? Again, this was written by Roger Wilson of Mobile. And now for the five-day forecast. Today, we'll have plenty of sun with a high of 42 and a low this evening of 20. Wednesday will also be sunny with a high of 46 and a low of 26. Thursday is could become windier and colder with a high of 34 and a low of 17. And then Friday is breezy with sunshine with a high of 28 and a low of 10. And then Saturday is be partly sunny, breezy in the afternoon with a high of 38 and a low of 24. And now our top story from the front page is Council pushes back vote on agreement with Gil Holling for waste collection and recycling. The Sioux City Council deferred a vote Monday on a resolution that would approve a 10-year agreement between the City and Gil Hauling uh, for solid waste collection, recycling, and disposal services. The vote for a one-week deferral was unanimous. Council members said they want to hear more public input on the proposed resolution. The item is expected to be back on the Council's agenda on February 13th. I'm not for a 10-year contract with anybody, Mayor Bob Scott said. We don't do 10-year contracts with anybody. I don't understand where this even came about. The current agreement, which expires on June 30th, allowed Gil Hauling to increase rates by 2% annually through the remainder of the contract. The new agreement, per the recommendation of the city's solid waste consultant, contains a floor consumer price index adjustment of 3% to a ceiling consumer price index adjustment of 5% for the length of the agreement. Roger Bentz, the city's environmental services program and development manager, told the council that Gil Holling would like to purchase six new solid waste trucks and new garbage and recycling totes for the entire city. We are looking at about a $4.4 million investment into the new carts for the city, and then as well as about a $3 million investment for six new ASLs, automated side loaders, Sean McDowell of Gil Holling said. With the staffing challenges over the past couple of years, we have done about 25% market wage adjustment to where we're getting our folks paid where they should be more fairly. So, by creating the operational efficiencies with the automated trucks, as well as being able to spread out that capital cost over the 10 years, as opposed to 5 or 7, we are able to give a more favorable rate. Scott remarked that buying all new carts or totes seems like such a waste of money. McDowell noted that many of them date back to 1994. He said about 1,000 carts with broken lids are being replaced on a monthly basis. A useful time frame on these carts is 15 to 10, 18 years, and over half of them are 30 years old or are in that ballpark, he said. In addition to rate adjustments, the agreement also provides for low-volume users to downsize to a smaller container for a cost savings, while allowing for larger recycling carts at no additional cost. The agreement also recommends that recycling collection take place every other week to keep costs down. Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore expressed concerns about recycling potentially being picked up every other week. I understand that's a cost savings measure. 
But are we going to lose interest in recycling? I just have that concerned, he said. Once you start that, you probably can't go back to once a week. Other features of this agreement include continued management of the city's citizens' convenience center, including the household hazardous materials operation. Guild Hauling agrees to place and service roll-offs for high-density residential recycling drop-off locations. All service locations within the agreement will receive a new solid waste and recycling container for a unified look throughout the city and for safe and efficient collections. The Council has the option to deny the agreement and request that solid waste collection, recycling, and disposable, disposal services be bid out. Iowa lawmaker says she plans to propose total abortion ban. An Iowa lawmaker plans to introduce legislation that would put a total ban on abortion in the state. During a Prayer for Life rally at the Iowa State Capitol on Monday, Representative Luana Stoltenberg, Republican from Davenport, says she hopes Iowa will pass a Life at Conception bill. My prayer is that Iowa will pass a Life at Conception bill to protect their most vulnerable and defenseless citizens, she said. Stoltenberg, 62, said she had three abortions as a teenager, and the procedures left her unable to have children. She later developed a Christian faith, she said, and opposing abortion was a key part of her 2022 campaign. Stoltenberg has not yet proposed legislation that would prohibit abortion at conception, but she said in an interview she plans to do so. Iowa's Republican legislative leader said before the session began, they plan to wait for an Iowa Supreme Court decision on the state's so-called fetal heartbeat bill before moving forward with more restrictions on abortion. Abortion is legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks. Governor Kim Reynolds is asking the court to reinstate a 2018 law that would ban abortion once cardiac activity is detected in a fetus, generally around six weeks, often before a person knows they are pregnant. If it can be presented and go forward, I do hope it does, Stoltenberg said of a life at conception proposal, because I think the Supreme Court said they would expedite their decision, but I'm not sure when that will be, so I don't know if it will be before we get out of session or not. Reynolds also spoke at the event, but she did not propose any further restrictions on abortion rather instead of reinstating the 2018 law. Still, to the dozens of activists gathered at the Capitol, Reynolds said there is still more to do for the anti-abortion cause. The U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade and left abortion decisions in the hands of the states, rewrote the playbook for the movement, she said. The end of Roe begins a completely new phase in the battle for life, she said. Across the country, what matters now is the will of the people, not government-appointed judges. The 2018 law that put harsh restrictions on abortions was a national leader, Reynolds said, and she hopes she hopes the court will reinstate the law. Maintaining our focus on a heartbeat bill doesn't mean doing nothing, Reynolds said. In fact, just the opposite. As we enter the post-Roe world, it's up to us to show what it means to be a pro-life state. Reynolds highlighted her proposal to provide a boost to the more options for maternal support program passed last year, including creative initiatives that reach out to at-risk fathers and potential fathers. Senator Kevin Alans, a Republican from Salix, echoed the comments made by Stoltenberg and said his hope is for state law to define life as beginning at conception. Democrats have criticized Republicans' positions on abortion, saying they are not in line with Iowa voters and threaten women's rights and reproductive health care. In a statement on Monday, Confer said, 
Iowans overwhelmingly support access to abortion and reproductive freedom. An October 2022 Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll found that 61% of Iowans think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. She said Democrats are advocating to guarantee access to abortion in Iowa's Constitution and provide more access to reproductive health care during the session. Politicians have no place interfering in someone else's decisions about when to start a family, Converse said. The latest plan by MAGA Republicans to ban all abortion without exception will put the lives of too many Iowans at risk. Democrats believe everyone deserves the right to make their own health care decisions, especially when it comes to reproductive care and abortion. In an emailed statement, Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa lobbyist Maisie Stilwell said placing limits on abortion strips people of their rights and autonomy. For now, abortion remains safe and legal in Iowa, but it's hanging by a thread and politicians in power are working hard to take away our rights, health care, and power over our bodies and futures. Iowa Republican Attorney General Brenna Byrd said at the rally she would work to protect the right to life. Byrd, a Republican, has made moves to represent the state in anti-abortion lawsuits and moves since taking over the office from former Attorney General Tom Miller, a Democrat, after the November election. Byrd signed on to a letter last week warning pharmacy giants CVS and Walgreens they could run afoul of federal law by sending prescribed abortion pills in the mail. The Food and Drug Administration cleared the way for retail pharmacies to prescribe medication abortions, including through the mail, last month. She also appeared to represent the state in the lawsuit to reinstate the 2018 abortion law. As your Attorney General, my job is to uphold the law and to protect the rights and freedoms of all Iowans, born and unborn, she said. Parents, lawmakers call for more restrictions on certain books in schools. Iowa parents and conservative activists said in a hearing with state lawmakers on Monday that there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for books they found obscene and divisive. In a House Government Oversight Committee meeting, the parents, many of them activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, read passages from books they found offensive and said they faced onerous and difficult procedures when trying to challenge the book in their local school districts. Nearly all of the books presented dealt with LGBTQ characters and people of color. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content they said were not suitable to be in a school library. You cannot distribute obscene material to children anywhere else, Pam Grono, a parent from Urbandale, said. Why would we allow our schools to be exempted from this? For something to be considered obscene in Iowa law, it has to lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and public libraries. Mandy Gilbert of Johnston, who raised concerns about the absolutely true diary of the part-time Indian and the hate you give, said she wanted parents to be informed that their children were reading the book she considered obscene. We do not ask for these two books to be removed from the school library, but questioned why they were hand-selected by teachers to read without parents knowing the explicit language, she said. Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, held a forum with Moms for Liberty last week where she suggested books that are removed by one school should be restricted at all other schools in the state. Under the proposal, a book that has been removed from one school library would be available for students at other schools, but only with a parent's permission. Some Republicans on the committee suggested there should be age restrictions on some books in a school library, similar to a movie rating that would require a parent's consent before being checked out. 
We don't allow children under 17 in R-rated movies, Representative Stephen Holt, Republican from Denison, said, and we are not banning these movies. We've made a decision that young people, as a minimum, should have parental consent before being exposed to adult material. But Democrats contended there were already processes in place to challenge materials in Iowa schools and questioned the implications of further restricting material. Lindsey James, Democrat of Dubuque and the ranking member of the committee, said being too quick to restrict a book with, could conflict with the rights of students and of parents in the district who did not have problems with the books presented. What I am concerned with is upholding constitutional free speech for our children, making sure that your parental right to choose is upheld, and that, as a mom with children in my district, in both elementary and middle school, that I would have the right to choose what my child would be exposed to, she said. Brooke Bowden, the chair of the committee said the committee planned to hold a hearing with administrators and teachers to gain their perspective. Several people showed up in opposition to the speakers at the meeting, sporting t-shirts extolling banned books and supporting public school teachers. Brenda Schumann, a former teacher from Des Moines who attended the hearing, said the proposals from Reynolds and other Republicans would place restrictions on children across the state regardless of how local districts felt about content. What happened to local control? What happened to parents, she said? They think they should be controlling every kid. If they don't want their kids to read it, there should be a way that they can keep their kid from reading it, but not keeping everybody else's kids from reading it. Siouxland Man Sought by Fugitive Task Force The United States Marshal Service Northern Iowa Fugitive Task Force is seeking the following person. Shannon Ivory, 52. He is 5 feet 10 inches tall and weighs 240 pounds. Ivory is wanted on an arrest warrant issued by the Iowa Department of Corrections for parole violation. Ivory is on parole for conviction of first-degree burglary. Ivory is also wanted on a warrant for possession with intent to deliver meth issued in the Woodbury County. Anyone with information can call 712 0211 or email at gov. Sioux City Council awards Riverside Sports Complex Lease Agreement to Hess Foundation. The Sioux City Council unanimously voted Monday to award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation for the rental of Riverside Recreational Sports Complex. The nonprofit organization which is affiliated with the Arena Sports Academy, is currently renting Long Lines Family Rec Center's second floor with the city, but the facility's climbing wall and party room are not included in the lease. Councilman Matthew O'Kane said, I think I speak for everyone when I say that I have far too many gray hairs from this entire ordeal. This was not a great experience. I really hope that all the organizations, not just these two that are sitting in this room, can work together because our youth are suffering if we're not able to find a common ground. In October, the council voted to delete the Hess Foundation's request to rent Riverside Recreational Sports Complex from its consent agenda to allow city staff to make changes to the lease agreement. Then, in December, a city staff asked the council to approve a resolution accepting a lease agreement from Westside Little League to rent the complex. That recommendation came after a review team evaluated proposals from both the Hess Foundation and the Westside Little League, and ultimately selected Westside Little League to lease the complex. During a council meeting on December 5th, Sioux City leaders expressed hope that Westside Little League and the Hess Foundation could create a partnership that could be a game changer for children playing youth sports in the community. At that time, the council opted to defer a vote on the matter so that the two entities could continue discussions. 
After city staff met with the Hess Foundation and the Westside Little League on January 6, a preliminary schedule was created in accordance with both entities' registration numbers. The Hess Foundation would need all six river side complex fields, along with fields at other locations for their softball league program, according to city documents. Based on field utilization, city staff recommended that the council award a lease agreement to the Hess Foundation. Dustin Cooper, executive director of the arena, told the council Monday that Westside Little League will be allowed to use the fields for softball. The entire time, I've said that we will do that free of charge, no rent, he said. Last week, I actually sent an email to all of the Little League presidents offering up field space for interleague play. Sioux City Parks and Recreation Director Matt Salvatore said the lease contains language that says the Hess Foundation agrees to sublease to Westside Little League Monday through Thursday during the summer for softball games, subject to the availability of the fields based on scheduled activities and appropriate insurance. Director named for Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Monday appointed Sergeant Brady Carney of the Des Moines Police Department's Investigations Division to lead the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. Sergeant Carney's years of experience in police patrol, investigation, and intelligence have prepared him to provide the best possible training experience for recruits, Reynolds said in a statement. In a statement, Carney said Iowa residents deserve excellence from their public servants, and the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy will work tirelessly to ensure those expectations are met. Carney has served as a uniformed patrol officer and narcotics investigator throughout his career, according to the governor's office, and has trained and supervised other officers throughout. He was named Des Moines Police Officer of the Year in 2019. As director of the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy, Carney will oversee law enforcement training and education and evaluate its performance in meeting immediate and long-term goals. He begins his new role March 6. Carney succeeds former Des Moines Police Chief Judy Bradshaw. She was appointed by Governor, former Governor Terry Branstad to lead the Academy in 2015 after she served one year as the Assistant Director. Bradshaw retired according to the Governor's Office, but it was not immediately clear when she retired. Iowa lawmakers want to reduce property taxes, but how? State lawmakers are determined to lower Iowans' property taxes, and this year several legislative proposals have surfaced. Capping increases in property assessments, limiting local property tax levy rates, more and stronger requirements before a school district can ask voters for permission to sell bonds for an infrastructure project. All of those proposals and more are floating through the Capitol, and lawmakers are hearing from Iowans and organizations about the impacts each proposal might have. Ultimately, lawmakers will need to reach an agreement between majority Republicans in the Iowa House and Senate plus Governor Kim Reynolds before any proposal can become law. With so many varied proposals making the rounds, that could take a while. Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican from Wilton who chairs the House's Tax Policy Committee, expressed confidence that some sort of property tax policy will get done this year. Our overall goal continues to remain that when whatever is in our legislation, the goal is to lower people's property taxes, Kaufman said Monday. Kaufman and Representative Dave Jacoby, 
the top Democrat on the House's Tax Policy Committee, spoke to reporters Monday after a legislative hearing on House Republicans' proposed property tax bill, House File 1. That legislation would reduce a property tax levy built into the state public school funding, cap annual property assessment increases at 3%, and require school districts to provide a down payment of 10% of a project's cost and notify every property taxpayer in the district when asking the public to support bonding for a building project. At Monday's hearing, Kaufman and House legislators heard concerns from groups representing Iowa's public schools, cities, counties, and assessors, and even some groups that advocate for lower tax policies. Other states that have tried capping assessments will show that they simply don't acquire the success that they are intended to, said Tom Sands, executive director of the Iowa Taxpayers Association and a former state legislator and chair of the House Tax Policy Committee. Dave Doughton, with the School Administrators of Iowa, said the required 10% down payment on a school bonding project would be fiscally very difficult for schools. As a former superintendent, I can tell you the decision to have a bond issue is not made casually, Doughton said. Meanwhile, Iowa Senate Dave Dan Dawson, a Republican from Council Bluffs who chairs the Senate's Tax Policy Committee, late last week introduced a series of proposals addressing tax policy, including property taxes. The legislation takes a mostly different approach to property tax law changes than do House Republican bills. While Dawson's bills would, like the House bill, cap assessment increases at 3%, the Senate bill also would cap cities and counties' general property tax levies and reduce the value at which properties are assessed. Iowans have told us their property taxes are too high and they want a better seat at the table, Dawson said. We have to be very thoughtful about our system to make sure that the system actually works for the property taxpayer. Dawson said he expects the Senate's property tax bills, Senate study bills 1124 and 1125, will soon be scheduled for their first legislative hearings. Now we move to a, a business story, local business, uh, titled Sweet Sensations, Hearts of the Chocolate Pretzel or Gummy Variety are Always in Style on Valentine's Day. Sometimes the best way to surprise your valentine is by purchasing a lip-shaped gummy with a liquid center. These are one of our most romantic items, Palmer's old-time candy shop manager Stephanie Conyers said, pulling, showing off some fire engine red candies. The gummy hearts are like fruit gushers, only with a little less liquid inside. Conyers, the manager of the 405 Wesley Parkway Candy and Specialty Food Store for the past seven months, has been on the lookout for the sweetest gifts on February 14th, the most romantic day of the year. According to the National Retail Federation, the NRF, Americans are expected to spend nearly $26 billion on Valentine's Day. That is up from the $23.9 billion spent in 2022. It will also be one of the highest spending years on record. So, what will Cupid be bringing you? The NRF said greeting cards, flowers, an evening out, jewelry, gift cards, and clothing will all be in abundance. Yet it is candy, which is the perennial favorite Valentine's Day gift item. This makes perfect sense to Conyers. Who doesn't like candy, she asked. Nobody can refuse something sweet from your sweetheart. That is certainly true at Palmer's, which offers sweet treats at every price point. For instance, bags full of bulk, red-hot, sour cherry, and chocolate-covered hearts would certainly please the kid in your life. So will pretzels that have been dipped in white frosting and red sprinkles. Lovers of healthier fare may prefer the gifts of strawberries or apples. 
Granted, we're talking Palmer candy here. Don't be surprised if the strawberries come covered in chocolate and the gourmet apples have a caramel or chocolate sheen to them. Well, what could be more romantic than that? We are guessing that would be the specifically truffles in all sizes and flavors. Conyers is particularly drawn to the champagne truffles, which consists of milk chocolate drizzled with pink and white coating. If you bite into one, it will actually taste like champagne, she said. The same can be said of truffles tasting of fruit and birthday cake. By far, my favorite truffle is the one that tastes like cappuccino, Conyers said. I love coffee as much as I love candy. Plus, Conyers and her crew try to taste test as much of their merchandise as possible. We have to know what the candy tastes like for the sake of our customers, she noted. Uh-huh, it is all about customers. On a more serious note, Conyers and assistant manager Monica Waldron go to national trade shows to see that what is trending in the world of candy and specialty foods. I never want to see the store get into a rut, Conyers said. Our customers want the new and the unexpected. Sometimes even check out the newest TikTok sensations. Social media is immediate, Conyers said. I don't personally follow it, but if a food item is trending on TikTok, my employees or my customers will tell me to order it. Indeed, she's already revving up production and merchandising in time for Valentine's Day. We have plenty of corporate customers who like to give out personal gift baskets of goodies, Conyers said. We even have individual customers who prefer to pick and choose favorite items for personalized baskets for family and friends. Yet, it may be something as simple as a single chocolate rose that will win over your Valentine. After all, a rose made of candy will last longer than the real thing, right? Don't count on that, Conyers warned. Most people will eat their chocolate rose as soon as they get it. And so if you want to go to Palmer's Specialty Foods, they're open Monday through Friday from 9 to 5.30, and on Saturday they're open from 9 to 5. And they're located at 405 Wesley Parkway in Sioux City. And then also on a side note, uh, Valentine's for Fido, Sweet Stats for 2023. Every year since 2004, the National Retail Federation and and Prosper's Insights and Analytics survey the spending habits of Americans on Valentine's Day. Although 2023 will see an increase in Valentine's Day spending compared to 2022, the average amount spent on gifts for family members and significant others is actually up by a very modest level. This year, the average planned spending for Valentine's Day for family and our partners will ring up to $130.80 in 2022. The average was $130.75, a difference of a nickel. The big increase will come from how much we spend on friends, classmates, teachers, co-workers, or even pets on Valentine's Day. In 2022, we spent $38.36 on such gifts. This year, we will spend $52.65. Valentine's Day is a special occasion to shop for the people we care about, NRF President and CEO Matthew Shea said. This year, as consumers embrace spending on friends and loved ones, retailers are ready to help customers celebrate Valentine's Day with memorable gifts at affordable prices. We'll now turn to sports. Nebraska basketball survives late turnovers to fend off Northwestern, and this is Nebraska women's basketball. Isabel Bourne scored 18 points as the Nebraska women's basketball team held off a comeback attempt to beat Northwestern 78-66 on Monday night. Nebraska had to hold on at the finish again, just like it did in last week's home win against Michigan State. 
The Huskers did not handle the Wildcats' full-court defense well in the fourth quarter, committing 11 turnovers in over the final 10 minutes. But they did make 12 consecutive free throws in the final 2 minutes and 20 seconds to seal the win. I thought there were times when we were playing the best basketball I've seen the Huskers play this season, and there were also times in the game where we were playing the worst basketball, Nebraska coach Amy Williams said at a post-game radio show. It's so crazy at this point in February. Northwestern cranked up their pressure in the second half, and we obviously did not handle that well. Northwestern has lost 10, no, 11 of 12 Big Ten games, and a loss would have been bad for Nebraska's NCAA tournament chances. The Huskers got back to a 500 in the Big Ten and moved up to a tie for seventh place in the league standings. Nebraska struggled with turnovers again with 24. Northwestern outscored the Huskers on points off turnovers 27 to 11. Obviously, that's not how we wanted to end the game, guard Sam Haby said, but I think the way we fought and handled the pressure at times and knocked down free throws was huge. Point guard Jazz Shelley had another strong all-around game with 12 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, 4 block shots, and 2 steals. With a free throw in the fourth quarter, Shelley reached 1,000 career points over two seasons at Oregon and two at Nebraska. Haby added 17 points for Nebraska. Alexis Markowski got her 11th double-double of the season with 11 points and, 11, and 10 rebounds. Nebraska made 10 three-pointers from seven players. The Huskers made a season-high 26 free throws on 34 attempts. The Huskers had a great start to the game. Bourne scored nine of Nebraska's first 11 points, with the Australian forward making Northwestern pay for leaving her open on a three-pointer and dead inside the paint. And Nebraska was draining three-pointers with Annika Stewart, Maddie Kroll, Haby, and Bourne, each making a three as Nebraska stormed out to a 23 lead. Bourne made her first five shots, not missing until her sixth attempt three minutes into the second quarter. I thought Izzy knew exactly where we wanted to try and attack their zone, and Jazz did a great job at finding her, Williams said. I thought Bourne got going with a couple of easy buckets off to, of great passes, and then she just plays with so much more confidence. Over the last three games, Bourne has averaged 17.3 points while making 20 of 31 shots. Paige Mott led the Wildcats with the 13 points. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 7th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper, so we will continue with sports. Iowa Athletics Financially Moving in Right Direction After COVID-19 Iowa Athletics financially is nearing pre-pandemic norms, the department's most recent NCAA financial report shows. Iowa netted a profit of $338,231 in the 21-22 fiscal year, based on how the NCAA measures costs and expenses, according to the report. It is the first time since 2018-19 that Iowa's revenue exceeded expenses, although the 21-22 profit remains significantly below the $5.7 million profit from that year. Everything's going in the right direction, said Greg Davies, the Athletic Department's Chief Financial Officer. The $338,231 top-line number is not an exact representation of Iowa's operating budget. The department must submit a balanced budget to the Board of Regents each year, Davies said. This just gives an overall picture of the entire department financially, Davies said, rather than the budget sent to the Board of Regents that is really our operating income and expenses.
As usual, media rights, contributions, and ticket sales were Iowa's three largest sources of revenue. They combined to account for more than two-thirds of the department's income. Iowa's 21-22 profit would have been higher had it not been for a $3 million payment as Iowa begins to repay its $50 million low interest loans from the university during COVID-19. Iowa is scheduled to pay back the loan over a 15-year period. The department would have to pay the university an average of $3.33 million per year to pay the loan on time. As we go forward, we'd love to pay it off faster if we can, Athletics Director Gary Barta said. Every year, we will now budget an amount going into the year toward that debt service. Donations still lagging, but not an area of concern. While many revenue sources have either returned to pre-pandemic norms or exceeded them, Iowa's contributions are lagging. The Athletic Department received $35.4 million in contributions in the 2018-19 fiscal year, the last full fiscal year before COVID-19 began. Iowa received only $29.5 million in contributions, although that outpaced the $12.3 million received in 2020, 2020 and 21. Davies said it is a residual effect of not having season ticket holders and their minimum seat donations during the 20. 2021 season. Some of the donations rolled over to 21-22 from when we didn't have folks in the stands. Contribution numbers also have a little bit of ebb and flow, Davy said, based on if there are any facility projects underway. The fiscal year concluded before the Swarm Collective launched and began seeking donations from Iowa supporters, which could potentially split contributions that previously were exclusive to Iowa athletics. Bonner is not concerned about Swarm's presence taken away from Iowa's donations, though. There are a lot of new donors who have come on board with the Swarm, Barta said, and then there's people who have decided to continue to give to us and to give to Swarm, so I think that's an important combination. Men's basketball spent $616,281 on recruiting in 21-22, the most of any team on campus. Football spent $577,589 on recruiting, and women's basketball spent $157,786. It was the second consecutive year that men's basketball was a top spender. In the 2020 21 fiscal year, which bore much of the COVID-19 brunt, men's basketball spent $32,178 on recruiting. Football spent $20,000 that year. The only other teams to spend five figures that year were volleyball and women's soccer. Women's basketball spent $1,466. Barna downplayed the difference in spending on recruiting, saying he does not know if it was a data discrepancy that led to the apparent change in spending level. Whether it's Kirk, whether it's Lisa, whether it's Fran, they have the resources they need to recruit, Barta said. Now we move to some entertainment news, and it's a um, behind the scenes for a movie called Between the Lines. First time feature film director credits French cinema as inspiration for generational drama. Between the Lines, a soon to be released feature film, details a young woman's quest for a new life while caring for her mother, who is suffering from a traumatic brain injury and enduring emotional abuse from her cruel grandmother. But if you're really looking between the lines, each woman in this three-generational drama reflects a different aspect of filmmaker Shelby Hagedorn's personality. Or, at the very least, they are characters that the first-time feature film director can picture sharing a mocha latte with on a cold Midwestern night. 
As a screenwriter and a director, I've always been drawn to women with complicated lives, Hagedorn explained. People may want you to make movies about zombies, but I think there's an audience for movies about people. Filmed in Sioux Falls and with a cast of actors from the Midwest and Los Angeles, Between the Lines will have its world premiere at 645 uh, February 21st at the Majestic Theater at 3 10 Main Street in Wayne, Nebraska, which is near Wayne State College, where Hagedorn earned her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in film production and history in 2021. After graduating from Wayne State, I was accepted into Emerson College of Boston for their film and television writing master's program, she said. As part of the program, I needed to produce a full-length screenplay. That was where Between the Lines was born. Not only did Hagedorn write and produce the movie, she also designed the costumes. She shared directing credits with Michael White, who is an associate professor at WSC. I handled the technical side of things while Shelby worked exclusively with the actors, White said. There is very much Shelby, this is very much Shelby's baby. Still, the two are frequent collaborators. Hagedorn was a pro producer for 2021's A Date with Lily, and 2022's The Queen of Pandora's Box, which were movies White wrote and directed. Previously, White served as executive director for 2020's Sigmund and Dora, a short film that Hagedorn had made as a WSC student. It was a movie based on Ida Bauer, who was the subject of Sigmund Freud's famous case study on female hysteria, Hagedorn said. People were initially surprised by the topic. Everyone thought Freud should be the focus because he was the person with the household name, she said. Instead, I knew Ida, called Dora and Freud's study, needed to have the dominant role. White says such differences are common in the way that male and female filmmakers approach their work. Men tend to tackle a scene in a very physical way, while women will handle the same scene in an intellectual or emotional way, he said. While Hackadorn doesn't disagree with White, she said the issue is more complicated than that. My scripts tend to feature the female voice, Hagedorn said, but I write for what I perceive as being my audience, which includes both men and women. Something that Hagedorn and White wholeheartedly agree upon is the mutual love of New York-based filmmakers like Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Dialogue is key to New York filmmakers, White, who has also written novels, explained. You can tell a lot about a character by the way he talks. Stylistically, both White and Hagedorn cite French New Wave directors as influence. I love director Céline Scampio's 2008's Water Lilies and consider director Agnes Varda's 1962 Clea from 5 to 7 as my hero, Hagedorn said. Which is heady stuff for a girl who grew up on a farm near Smithland, Iowa. According to White, Hagedorn is an artist as well as a filmmaker. Shelby will literally storyboard storyboard every scene before it is filmed, he said. Shelby's eye is that exacting. The need to illustrate a scene may also come from Hagedorn's animation background. She is the animation director for the Columbus, Ohio-based creative video agency Made by Things. Mostly, Hagedorn sees herself as a writer, creating characters she'd like to see in real life. When a writer writes a screenplay, her relationship with characters remain even after the movie is over, she said. Sometimes you'll stop and think, what will this ch character do in a completely different scenario?
White said that is very common when authors form a bond with their own creations. So, how will audiences feel about the characters Hagedorn created in between the lines? Hopefully, things are never as black and white as they appear, she said. Even though the family members in the movie are dysfunctional, they still need each other. The grandmother may do terrible things, but she does it out of love. If you are interested in seeing the premiere of this movie, it is um, will make a fe feature film debut on fe uh, Tuesday, February 21st at 7 p.m. at the Majestic Theater at 310 Main Street in Wayne, Nebraska. And now we'll move to some business news. Iowa lawmakers advance bill shielding trucking companies from negligence. Iowans whose family members were killed or permanently disabled in crashes involving commercial truck drivers pleaded with lawmakers Thursday to abandon a bill that shields trucking companies from liability for direct negligence in many cases if their drivers are involved in a serious crash. The measure also would limit non-economic damages arising from pain, suffering, inconvenience, physical impairment, mental anguish, and loss of companionship and enjoyment of life to $1 million in lawsuits against the owner or operator of a commercial vehicle for incidents resulting in personal injury or death. Putting a cap on damages in lawsuits, regardless of the person, the situation, or how negligent someone is, puts a government-mandated price on human life, said Michelle Fields of Jefferson, whose husband was killed in 2017 after a tractor-trailer hauling grain for a local cooperative re-ended the open cab tractor he was driving on the shoulder of a county road. The driver of the semi was later convicted of misdemeanor charges for drug possession, failure to maintain control of the vehicle, and failure to stop in assured, clear distance. Fields, now a single mother of two, said her husband, like most farmers, had loans for equipment, land, and buildings, only half of which his life insurance policy covered. She hired attorneys who reached a settlement with the insurance companies. The effort took four years, with 45% of the total settlement going towards attorney fees and legal expenses. The family sued the cooperative for negligence, alleging it failed to ensure the driver exhibited the necessary skills, ability, and experience to safely operate the truck. The lawsuit also alleges the cooperative knew or should have known about the driver's drug history. House Study Bill 114 and its companion in the Senate would bar people from suing trucking companies over an employee's harmful conduct due to direct direct negligence in hiring, training, supervising, or trusting the employee, excluding cases where the driver is under the influence of drugs, alcohol, and other substances. State House Republicans continue to push forward the bill that supporters say would help Iowa businesses that rely on the trucking industry. The bill failed to pass the Iowa House last year, but Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, told reporters he expects to move forward on the measure this year. That is despite opposition from some House Republicans, who say the measure places an arbitrary and capricious limit on financial rewards to Iowans who are severely injured by commercial vehicles and erodes their right to just compensation. The American jury system is built on plaintiffs being able to recover their damages, economic and non-economic, based on evidence presented to a jury, the 12 people that sit in a box and listen to the evidence and look the plaintiff in eye, said Representative Brian Losey, Republican from Bondurant, an attorney who did personal injury and insurance claim work. They are the ones in the American legal system that are entitled to determine how much pain and suffering and loss of enjoyment of life they're able to recover. It is, in my mind, very arrogant of us to even contemplate this.
A House committee on Thursday narrowly advanced the bill, 1110, making it eligible for floor debate. Representative Bill Gustav, Republican from Des Moines, said during the committee hearing on the bill that Iowa ranks as one of the top states to do business. We're just trying to keep it that way and avoid some of the nuclear verdicts that we've seen in other states. The Senate gave initial approval Thursday in subcommittee to the companion bill. I believe that having looked at other states, this bill does need some work, said Senator Michael Boussalat, Republican from Ankeny, but that the legislation is a balanced approach. Business groups and supporters from the trucking and insurance industries, including Cedar Rapids-based trucking company CRST, said the bill would prevent overzealous and crippling verdicts that award tens of millions of dollars in injury and wrongful death lawsuits against trucking companies. They also argued the bill would keep insurance rates for businesses down and provide predictability to commercial vehicle owners on their level of liability. Opponents, including trial lawyers, the Iowa State Bar Association, and justice-based groups, said high-dollar verdicts are not an issue in Iowa, which they said has the nation's fourth-lowest commercial vehicle insurance rates. Kelly Paschke, a lobbyist for the Iowa Association for Justice, said the negligence protection measures would shield trucking companies when they hire bad actors, such as employees with known drug addictions or fail to pro follow proper safety and maintenance schedules. Essentially, what this bill does is make the truck driver, the employee, the scapegoat for bad decisions of the employer, Paschke said. Chip Baltimore, a former state lawmaker with 20 trial lawyers for justice, said the bill will only keep injured Iowans from just compensation. Baltimore said it called it legislative surgery with a baseball bat. You don't bludgeon an entire group of citizens and punish them for a perceived problem you can't even wrap your heads around or identify with facts and data, and that's what I fear you are doing here, he said. If it becomes law, Democratic lawmakers said Iowa will become the first state with protections for trucking companies. Automated Waste Systems acquires Bobcat dealer Franken Implement and relocates operation to Hull, Iowa. Automated Waste Systems announced this week the acquisition of Franken Implement and Service, an authorized Bobcat dealership in Rock Valley. The dealership's operations and equipment have been relocated to Automated Waste Systems' existing equipment location in Hull, Iowa. The Bobcat dealership will now operate as part of Automated Waste Systems, the company said in a press release. Terms of the transaction were not disclosed. We are excited to offer the Bobcat lineup at our location in Hull because of the high quality and versatility of the equipment, Luke Jungers, co-owner and general manager of Automated Waste Systems, said in a statement. We are proud to join the Bobcat dealer network and provide our customers and local construction, landscaping businesses, and homeowners with acreages uh, with these new options. Founded in 2002, the Hull-based company recently marked its 20th year of operation. The company offers equipment sales, parts and services with locations in Watertown, South Dakota and Hull, Iowa. The Hull location is the company's only facility to carry the full line of Bobcat brand products, which includes skid steers, telehanders, compact truck track loaders, utility vehicles, and mini excavators, along with offering parts and full service for these products. Automated Waste Systems will continue to focus on serving agriculture customers in the area, as well as expanding their services through Bobcat equipment to local construction and landscaping com companies, as well as homeowners in the community with large acreages. The reach of the dealership extends to nearly a 
150-mile radius to customers in Sioux, Lyon, and O'Brien counties, as well as customers in southeast South Dakota, northeast Nebraska, and southeastern Minnesota. The, the company employs 35 people at their Hull location, including 16 service technicians. Facility addition was constructed on the shop to expand its showroom and service capabilities. Security National Bank announces new commercial officer. Sarah Heyman has been named commercial officer at Security National Bank. In her role, she will be responsible for developing close relationships with business owners and executives, serving as a knowledgeable banking partner to commercial clients and providing tailored banking solutions to help them achieve what matters most. Heyman comes to Security National with 15 years of banking experience, 11 of those in commercial lending. She earned her bachelor's degree in business administration and accounting from the University of South Dakota. In the community, Heyman is chair of the servicing committee as well as member of the executive committee for the Siouxland Economic Development Corporation. She also serves on the Perry Creek PTA's executive board and helps with youth all-star cheerleading at VIP Gymnastics, Ninja, and Cheer. Heyman resides in Sioux City with her husband, Keel, a master sergeant at the 185th Air Refueling Wing and their two children. And it's now time for Dear Abby. Dear Abby, I am 33 with a wonderful husband and amazing kids, ages 4 and 6. I have a close bond with my parents. We live in a city about 80 miles from them. It seems like we are always the one to do the visiting, and I have practically begged them to visit me for one overnight visit a year. My house is smaller than theirs, but we offer up our bedroom for their stay. Meanwhile, because my brother still lives at home with my parents, I sleep on the, an air mattress when I'm there. Abby, I bend myself into a pretzel to make it work for them, and yet there are always excuses why they will not visit. Mom tells me she misses the kids, but she invariably expects me to pack a bag and head that way. It's frustrating. Sometimes our budget is so tight, I don't have the luxury of spending an extra $70 in gas for a trip. My financial situation is not her burden, so I never mention it. I brought up just once in the past that she rarely visits, and she really does believe in her head that she visits at least twice a year. When I corrected her, she blew up. I'm not sure how to feel about this. Sometimes it hurts inside like a rejection, and other times I feel like I need to tell myself to grow up. So here I am, in the middle, with grandkids who love their grandparents, grandparents who love their grandkids, and if I don't play the mom taxi, how will they see each other? Signed, Mom Taxi in Tennessee. And Abby responds, They want, and when your mother asks why you have stopped coming, point out that fuel is costly and your budget is very tight. Then suggest that if she wants her grandchildren to remember her when she and your dad are gone, they need to make more of an effort to visit you more than once a year. If their hesitancy is because your house isn't comfortable, suggest they stay at a nearby hotel or motel. And P.S. If your mother gets lonely between visits, she can always video chat, as countless other grandparents do today. Dear Abby, my husband and I have been married more than 40 years. As he's grown older, he's become the stereotypical grumpy old man. Although he can be thoughtful, like giving me flowers for my birthday, he's increasingly moody, impatient, and angry. He often rants about politics and other things and won't stop trying to impose his views on me. I agree with some of his opinions, but he gets upset if I disagree. Because I don't want an argument, I either don't respond or I leave the room, which also upsets him. Sometimes he apologizes because his no he knows his ranting upsets me, but shortly after he resumes doing it. I love him and do a lot of things for him, but living with him can be a downer. 
Can you suggest any strategies for coping with my grumpy old man? Signed, Enduring it in New Hampshire. The uh, response, Schedule an annual physical exam for yourself and your grumpy old man. Behavioral changes in an older person should not be minimized or ignored because they could be a symptom of physical or mental illness. Once you know what you're dealing with, take your cues from the doctor or spend less one-on-one time with your husband and tell him why. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, February 7th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. 
chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.